for July 24th, 2023. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 786. In Greek, nostalgia means an old phaser wound which does not heal. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Pop culture. The final frontier. No. <laughs> the penultimate front. No. The anti-penultimate front. No. It's not, it's not even. It's not, probably not even a frontier. The frontiers of culture are not popular. And the popular culture is not a frontier. But here we are. To uh, voyage across it, finding strange new meanings in, uh, in you know, uh, things that are very familiar, <laughs> that are neither strange nor new. Uh, these are the voyages of the podcast, Overthinking It. I'm Matt Rather. I'm here with my good friend, Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hey, Matt. How and are you, man? I'm doing good. Thanks. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you back. And, and, and Mark Lee, uh, thanks for podcasting with me last week. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Doing great, doing great. Um, are we still on strike? No, you you are still on strike. Yes, um, I, am I. Am I still management in, in your labor? We don't have to is keep the, the is bit over, Matt. Well, I don't know. Over. Yeah, Pete, Pete is back. Like Pete, Pete <laughs> actually was. Pete is out of work. Uh, he he was out of work for for striking. Pete, I don't know if you listened. You you were an entertainment professional. Uh, yeah, briefly. For, yep. for uh, for a while, and uh, I don't know if you had thoughts about uh, what we talked about last week. But I'd be curious to hear them if you did. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't on the podcast because I was traveling, not because I opposed its subject matter. Um, I do have a, you know, I have my own relationships with unions. Union Buster oh. Pete Fenzel. No! <laughs> I mean, I like my family's health insurance has been paid for by a union for a long time. So, like, uh, thank you very much. But also, uh, I'm a minor government official, so I have to be careful about what I say. Although, of course, it's in the arts and culture, uh, and a lot of it is with, you know, people who aren't uh, of the sort of professional uh, professional caliber uh, who are either just getting started or more community oriented. But the point being that I love the podcast. Thank you guys so much for having the conversation. If I were to throw my own two cents in, not to recapitulate the whole conversation, the one bit of perspective I might have tried to add would have been the um, the benefit to institutions and organizations of a collective bargaining process that I've observed in the work of people that I've been around. Uh, one of the things that it does is it surfaces the expertise of the frontline employees that the management either may be unaware of or deaf to in a given situation, uh, or they may have other priorities that loom so large for them that they're not able to give proper shake to the expert opinions of the people who are like on the ground doing the work. And so um, having some sort of process where you collectively discuss things like hours worked you know, uh, breaks, scheduling, you know, uh, what kind of staffing different kinds of situations have. If the process is entered into in good faith by two parties, I think you can do a lot of good work. And I think that people get a warped idea of uh, of the possibility of effective bargaining when they only encounter uh, management and union relationships in the context of a breakdown of strikes and of obstructions, because there's a lot of the time, a lot of things, they're just going along. You know, I mean, I have, I have clients in my real life job that are unionized and ones that aren't and life goes on, you know, like the companies make money. It's not like everyone's being driven into the ground by this sort of thing. Um, and, uh, it's not like, you know, it's not like the world's on fire, you know, it, I mean, it might be, but not for this reason. Uh, and yeah, just the idea being that like, there's a lot to be gained from, 
having these kinds of conversations with people who can surface what they know in their own core competency and their own perspective and really talking about things that matter and having, you know, um, a mechanism for doing that. And I think that um, I also think that there's no institution that's so well oriented that it can't be ruined by the wrong people, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and, and that's a sort of hard, hard learned lesson, you know, like that, uh, that, you know, people can ruin literally anything. But Pete, so, like, I, I, that's, a, that's a really good point. And I think it points out one of the, the particular challenges here, which is that you know, the actors are not negotiating with management per se. They're negotiating with a consortium, you yeah. know, and yeah. that, 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 that seems to get in the way of coming up with like good creative solutions for these kinds of and problems. The, con- the contracts are, yes. you know, one day to six weeks, you know, uh, six months at the outside. Right. Like, so yeah. it's not like, it's not like, I don't know, just to, to pick another, I guess I, I should pick one that's not currently in strife, but like UPS drivers and UPS, right. Like work together all day, every day, forever, you know, yeah. and, and actors are not, actors are, are not like that. I, I mean, I'll tell you that the union does, and I participated in, in the past when I was working as, as an actor, but like the union does, uh, what they call a wages and working condition sort of discovery process, which is kind of a yeah. lis- listening tour. Um, mm-hmm. but management is not involved in that. It really, it's, it's, you know, part of the, <laughs> part of like discovering what the demands are going to be for the next, the yeah. next contract, contract negotiation. But like one of the things that we pointed out was that the various members of the consortium have interests that are not even aligned with one another. Um, you know, yeah. so like Netflix is a different business than Disney is a different business than Sony is a different business than um, uh, 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 Warner Brothers. Right. Like and that's yeah. uh, oh, excuse me. Warner Brothers Discovery. Welcome That's to right. Flavor, welcome to Flavor Town. But the <laughs> uh, you know um, right, and so that that even even in that there are various kinds of like uh, there are various types of of factiousness, and uh, you know the dynamics of the thing make it be make it difficult to um, do what do what you're talking about, which sounds indeed like a, a pretty laudable aim. If you can do it, yeah, yeah. I, I think that as much as people are talking about the writers and actors and kind of their organizations and what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. It is worth pointing out that I think the setup that the studios have is pretty stupid Mm. Uh, in in terms of like, not stupid, but it's not set up for success. And I think you guys hit the nail on the head with why it's not set up for success because it's a cartel, not a management group, right? Like it's a, it's not a group that's actually trying to make the business succeed. Sure. It's a price fixing organization. Yeah. Um, and so of course, yeah, you know, you could say, well, of course that's who they're going to send and they don't have to, um, there, there are definitely ways to do these sorts of things in ways that don't make it difficult for everybody all the time. I mean, it's a lot of work. It's boring, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I'll leave that aside because this, obviously there's a lot going on and people are working really hard. I just wanted to voice my support for it, uh, since I wasn't here. Um, and also just to say that, uh, I think that um, it, that there are roles for different organizations and kind of representatives in these processes that um, are useful uh, even when things aren't blowing up. And when something when a particular industry is blowing up all the time, it might be a sign that they're really not taking advantage of the opportunities that are present in this kind of working relationship to yeah. like actually make things better. Um, don't ever get your duty. That's the thing that pisses me off more than anything, especially for people in positions of leadership. Um, don't, 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 uh, don't give up the ship. Don't give up the chair. Right. And I guess we can segue that into what we wanted to talk about this week. Although I did give up my chair this week, Matt, I gave up my chair at seeing Oppenheimer this week. Oh, wow. I didn't get to see Oppenheimer. Yeah. We were going to talk about Oppenheimer today. Right. Yes. And like, and then, and then I got canceled, uh, because of the family. 
What's up? The plants blew up, such as it were. You know what? It was like, I was like, ooh, I'm going to go to the movies. And then someone said, cruel fate was like, I am death, the destroyer of worlds. <laughs> you're not going to the movies today. You'll have to go next week. And, and I was like, you no, like, you're, the world you're a, change forever. You're a communist. Let's persecute you. <laughs> yeah. And then I went to go play with my Barbies, but they were like, you can't watch this movie this week either. I was like, oh, no, I'll have to see that one next week. So, yes. So I apologize for not having seen any of the movies or being here to fight the power. Uh, as someone who often is not really firmly rooted in the uh, in the in the underdogs camp, sure. Um, except with regards to movie critique. Well, we uh, have <laughs> <laughs> Ghost Rider, ride or die, Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance. I, you know, well, we have a problem. We have a problem by we. I mean, the actors have a problem in that the the backlog of material that the studios have is so. Uh, big that like you, you could just go uh you could just go for for years and years not releasing anything new and i still would not clear out my netflix queue case yeah. in point we are only now getting around to watching season one of strange new worlds which is a spin-off of a spin-off uh of the star trek franchise um it it's spun off from it it is a kind of a reboot of star trek the original series featuring captain christopher pike uh who was you know sort of famously the captain in the first pilot for uh gene roddenberry star trek the original series uh back in the day and this character is being um uh this character is being used to kind of do a reboot of like what of like an enterprise, uh, an old Star Trek with, with modern graphics, modern sensibilities, modern writing, modern sort of, um, television styles. And there are some tie-ins to discovery. I, I didn't really stay with discovery, so I don't know what they were, but Star Trek discovery, uh, is, is a television show with a, a kind of a, conflicted relationship with overthinking it. Mark, can you tell us a little something about what happened when we tried to watch Star Trek Discovery? Let me tell you, let's take us all back to the days of 2018. Remember that long time ago? What what, what happened was I saw the death of our website. (laughs) Almost, right? Okay. (laughs) We were grinding out hardcore. We were trying to, um, you know, just put out a ton of content and really kind of make a quote unquote business model work with overthinking it. And part of it was like, hey, we need to keep putting text articles out there um, at, at a pace of like s- several per week or at least one per week. Uh, and it's something akin to what it started, you know, back in the, in the middle of the aughts when we were doing this as a hobby. And we had a lot of free time and ambition and ideas uh, that needed to get out somewhere. Um, anyway, so we, we had settled on, OK, we're going to do weekly re- uh, episode recaps of Star Trek Discovery. And. Um, because we were chasing page views and this was a thing that like, oh, we felt like we had to do this to meet our audience where they're at and bring in a new audience, that kind of stuff. Over the course of this first season, it dawned on us that two things. One is we working on several things. We were getting the page views. Um, this type of writing really didn't suit us. And also, we really didn't like this show. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was the main problem. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It was, it was and not to make this about Star, Star Trek Discovery, but it was like all this like dumb angst and mirror universe stuff and ulteriority with the characters. Um, and it all rubbed us the wrong way. And Michelle Yeoh was wasted for and she comes back as evil Michelle Yeoh. And, and I didn't like that either. And lots of stuff to complain about. Anyway, all that is to say that Star Trek Discovery was a show that almost broke overthinking it. Yes. It certainly for put me off of Star Trek, like any Star Trek at all, um, for um, until basically this week <laughs> when Pete said, "Hey, you should watch Strange New Worlds," and then we said, "Oh no, we should we should podcast about it." 
Um, now the the discovery tie-in, and I'll, and I'll use this. That that's some that's some setup there, just to like kind of say like you know uh, another bit of setup as well is that like you know we all back in the day certainly at, at various parts of our lives I think we could also we were Trekkies, big Star Trek fans, what have you, um, and it's been tough to kind of get back into a working relationship with Star Trek, but here we are, and the show in the universe does this by and I think it was the end of season one or at some point in Star Trek Discovery, uh, Captain Christopher Pike shows up with the Enterprise. And uh, like everything, most things that happened in Star Trek Discovery, I rolled my eyes pretty hard at it because it felt <laughs> like the show was being desperate, you know, trying to get tie-ins and, you know, to the, the Star Trek we know and love. Oh, and I also rolled my eyes because Captain Christopher Pike um, is there and he's like, you know, it's CBS. He's a CBS daddy. <laughs> he's a gray-haired white guy here to save the day <laughs> because Star Trek Discovery's cast is – I'm being honest. Yeah. This is my reaction at the time because um, Discovery's cast was too diverse. And then I hear that a strange <laughs> new world TV show is coming out, um, starting the aforementioned, you know, uh, featuring Captain Christopher Pike, CVS, noted CVS daddy. And I'm like, this cannot possibly be any good. So I wrote it off and I kept hearing little mentions here and there that this show is actually good. And then I, Pete, when I saw you last week, I was like, hey, Strange New World is good. You should give it a shot. And I gave it a shot, and I did enjoy it. Um, has some issues with it, which we'll talk about soon. Anyway, that brings us back to uh, uh, to, to the show at hand, which uh, by all counts is quite good. Would you say, Pete, it is pretty good? Yeah, I mean, I've been watching it longer than you guys have, and I do appreciate on this week of uh, of, of not getting to see either of the Barbie or the, the Oppenheimer that you're willing to talk about this show that I've been a fan of for a little while now. Um, and yeah, I mean, I enjoyed the show a lot. I, I think when I first watched the show. I was in a particular sort of mood and it, it made me cry a great deal. Like this is a show that hit me where I lived a lot and in some weird ways that I'm maybe not entirely to, to terms with or comfortable with. Uh, but I did really like the show and, 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 and I continue to like it. I've watched it up through the end of the first season. I've watched some of the beginning of the second season. This podcast will only be spoilers for the first two episodes of the first season because that's all Mark and Matt have watched. But I can make some sort of general statements about what I've watched so far, which is up through the first few episodes of the second season. Um, I like the show a lot. And uh, and and I'm glad that um, that what I guess how would I how would I even say it? There's no, there's nothing. We had to, we had to hit rock bottom, guys. <laughs> like we really <laughs> did. I think, I think, yeah, yeah, that's, and, we, and we had Star Trek as well. Yeah, yeah. I think I made mean, might have been one of the problems with the Star Wars prequels is we never really hit rock bottom. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, and like only after so the like, fact yeah, do we realize. Do you know oh, the prequels man. are actually like the prequels are this great. You know, like uh, Dada piece of deconstructed <laughs> absurdist theater, right? Where like, uh, uh, I mean, you know, my take on the Star Wars prequels, right? Which is like they're amazing because every line of all of the movies is said with equal importance. Yes. That's like their secret, their <laughs> yeah. secret aesthetic beauty. <laughs> and um, uh, I think actually, what someone someone talking about the writers' strike online uh, said, like, you know, someone said only a Sith deals in absolutes with regards to somebody talking about labor relations. And the person said, a writer wrote that. And I was like, I don't well, know. <laughs> like George Lucas wrote that. <laughs> like that's is George well, Lucas a writer? Like what is he? But we're not here to talk I mean, about George Lucas. <laughs> a writer just before you leave Star Trek and go to Star uh, Star Wars and go to Star Trek. Yeah. I would also remind you uh, regrettably a writer also wrote somehow Palpatine returned. 
So well, that's true. A writer that, wrote that. that. A happen. writer. I mean, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> a billionaire CEO who also happened to be a writer. Right. Uh, wrote the other one. Um, you be the judge. <laughs> like, uh, and an actor said it. And that was really the important part. But, yeah, I think I think that. Um, so with with straight, one of the things that's happening now, I think, is that there has been such a cluster bomb of nostalgia that has been falling on all of us through the explosion and proliferation of content related to the phenomenon you were talking about in your podcast last week, which is the larger number of shorter shows with like less initial investment mm. oh, oh, in, in terms of a larger overall investment. Right? You make a large overall investment in a large number of shows that have relatively fewer individual episodes and that represent le- relatively less of a commitment for the long term. But it's an opportunity and even movies to really just just milk every IP that exists. Right. And I, mm-hmm. I have generally not complained about that because, you know, I'm I'm, I'm here for the ride, man. <laughs> that's, 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 you know, if you, uh, you yeah, we are being me, pandered to I, give me that. So. Give me that gritty reboot of Turbo Teen. I want to see that kid turn into a motorcycle. <laughs> Like make it happen, you know. Like I'm on board. You don't. You can't. You're, I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me and Turbo Teen. Right? Like, this is this is the history that we live with. This this is the life that we lived, uh, and we won't have lived any other life when all is said and done. But um, but uh, but yes, like uh, there's been so much proliferation of this stuff, and there's that strong reading of all of it that came out of Mad Men, which we've talked about a few times recently. This notion of nostalgia being a defining characteristic of all of this cultural moment, uh, which is really, I think, really writ large, the the sort of swan song of the boomers. Right. They, this this gener- this giant generation that had this huge cultural impact that really, I, I think, people who weren't around for the people before them are not really going to fully appreciate how much change. Right. Um, and and. Uh, and and they're going to be gone, you know, like they're kind of bowing out of a lot of areas of public life gradually. And like, you know, the, and uh, and that's a big change. And so a lot of stuff is kind of caught up in this in this issue. It's also because there's such a big marketing demographic that dominated all this stuff for such a long time. And so this idea of this sort of sad nostalgia and that being why we will watch reboots of everything, um, right, is because we want to feel that nostalgia. And I feel like. With Star Trek, it's like it really was a, it was really almost an abusive relationship. <laughs> this, this nostalgia relationship, I just with felt like d- it with kept Discovery. Getting... Yeah, I don't know, like well, uh, and Picard. And oh, Picard sure. Even more than Discovery. The, right? the like, Greeks, uh, the Greeks called nostalgia, you know, the pain you feel from an old phaser wound. Or uh... <laughs> <laughs> I, I would even say that, like, I like the J.J. Abrams movies more than most. I certainly like the third J.J. Abrams movie a lot more than most. But also, it's a movie that, like, it most also was not people, a J.J. Abrams movie, to be clear. <laughs> very clear. Very, very true. Very true. But the idea being that, like, there that there was a lot of attempt to put Star Trek back on the map uh, that, that kind of didn't really f- succeed in putting Star Trek back on the map. But also, the map was weird and strange and different, right? Um, and so the goodwill kind of ran out for us, right? It, uh, it kind of petered out. Um, it even got to the point where I, I stopped watching Voyager in like the third or fourth season in my rewatch of that. Um, well, no, that was just Voyager's fault. That was just because the Harry Kim pineapple T-shirt, uh, pineapple uh, Hawaiian shirt episodes ran out of gas. But uh, but the point being that like I was no longer willing just to watch Star Trek in order to feel nostalgic for previous Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, it had to have some sort of freaking purpose, right? Like why? Like what is this? On what basis is this connecting with me? 
like, or what sort of entertainment am I deriving from it? I didn't even get to the end of season, season two of Picard. I wrote, watched season one. Um, and I mean, I don't want to trivialize actually abusive relationships, but seeing this relationship was abusive because it wasn't. They were trying really hard and putting out really high quality stuff I mean, uh, that had a lot of problems. Trying, they were trying really hard to do something. Sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, I'm, I'm not sure the thing they were trying really hard to do was laudable. I mean, Picard, Picard season. I mean, the three, lighting was really good in most of those shows. Yeah, sure. Like, and the set set design and the well, <laughs> and the, the digital. I mean, yeah, exactly. Being able to <laughs> being able to shoot digital with the much more kind of the agility that that smaller, more lightweight, uh, and less like light sensitive or more light sensitive, I guess, less light hungry camera affords you, right? Like, uh, definitely gave them a lot of a lot of things. And when Picard encountered Guinan in the past, uh, and ten forward uh was actually at uh number 10 forward street well that was you know that was <laughs> that was great writing that was a bridge too far man <laughs> yeah a writer wrote that <laughs> a, a writer a writer, a wrote, writer that. wrote that yeah so i, I, I wanna, is never going to give you that thing i'll tell you that much i want to share it i want to <laughs> even if you keep asking for it i want to share that with that's you that's not good oh. that just means it won't do what's what it's told anyay sorry continue no, no you're okay you're you're uh, i i shouldn't have jumped in yet but i want to share with uh-huh. you my take that yeah, i yeah, yeah, when please, i please, when please. i watched the pilot um uh i had two thoughts that that, that occurred to me simultaneously and they were this one, this is not good. And two, I like it. While I was while I was listening, you know, while I was listening to the dialogue in the in the, you know, Sad Pike, uh Sad Pike in the Montana wilderness or wherever he was, right? Like in the in S one E one of Strange Strange New Worlds to establish his backstory, is he going to come back and be captain of the Enterprise? And they said, you know, some say, you know, like someday, someday you're going to, or, or when it was like, it's classified. I have higher security clearance than you. Not for this. You don't like that. Or when it was like, Hey, when you get back from your deployment, come look me up. I might be here. Or, you know, like I, it was like, no, this is not, you know, this is not good. Uh, when, when he's called back to service and it's, it's one of these, like, you've forgotten that it's not, you know, you've forgotten that I outrank you. Oh, sorry, Admiral. I'm going to hop back on my horse and ride through the snow home. Yeah. But, <laughs> I, I, and yet does, I, I was very glad that they answered the question that was in all of our minds, right? Uh, with, with Captain Pike, which is that in the first couple seconds of the show, you want to know, does Pike F? (laughs) (laughs) And the question is that this guy F's. This guy. And then later in that pilot episode, would you look at his quarters with a wet bar and a conversation (laughs) pit? You know, and everyone's walking around with cat eye eyeliner and you're like, oh, this guy F's. This guy can get it. You know? And and I, now now I, I mean I, I think what I'm saying is is hundred percent true. I'm I'm you know focusing and exaggerating for comic effect. I actually felt I felt like a good vibe from the show, a good ensemble vibe, like there was going to be kind of good interactions, that it was going to be a good time to kind of spend time with the with with these characters. And Pete, I mean you can sort of say whether that's borne out in the the 
remainder of that the balance of that first season and the second season which is which is underway but like there there were sort of quality problems kind of in the writing and the kind of the formulaic uh, set up. And I guess that's a pilot thing where you have to like sort of establish your leading man's demons and you have to like establish, uh, uh, who everybody is and why they're, you know, why they're there. And everybody calls each other. There's a lot of, as you know, bobbing and there's a lot of like people calling each other by their names unnecessarily just so you can be reminded of. Um, of who's who Spock is the one with the pointy ears, but like, but my, my overall and the impre- washboard abs. <laughs> yeah, well, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this Does, guy, this <laughs> guy. <laughs> you know, he's Logically. not a guy, this Vulcan, abs. <laughs> <laughs> this, this stony logic machine isn't just stony in his demeanor. He's stony in his washboard abs. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, we we uh, learn it gets his green blood boiling, you know. Uh, <laughs> so that's uh, I'm pretty uh, pretty pretty stoked. And there's in the uh, in the um, uh, this season on Star Trek, uh, what's it called? Strange New Worlds. Um, little package that they they ran at the end of the first episode. You know, they they teased a romance between Spock and Nurse Chapel, which uh, seems seems like it's. It's going to be great. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm so uh, he's, he's getting married. How could he have a romance with another character when he's getting married? Oh, my God. Does he? I mean, you know, look, not in uh, is it, he's not engaged in this parsec, baby. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, like, uh, I don't know. It, like it was not uh, what I was watching was not good, uh, but it was uh, but I did. I did enjoy it. I feel like the quality of this the second episode, just in terms of writing, because it didn't have the burden of like laying the groundwork uh, ended up ended up being better. And the kind of the charm of it. Um, the charm of it remained. So you know, I don't know. There, there's from a non from a non specialist. Um, I had other observations too, but let me just leave that there and see if that res- yeah. resonates with either hey, of let, you. Let, let, let me get in. I, I agree by and large um, with what you said, Matt. Um, I, I to zoom out for a second here. I think like what works about this show more than doesn't work is that it captures the Star Trekness that we were all missing. From the angsty um, shows that we were criticizing earlier, in particular Discovery, right? Like the sense of like, hey, like, you know, these uh, zany aliens, you know, these people come across this and, you know, it's the whole exploration thing. And um, and th- Pete, I think like when you talk about um, the Orville and how it's yeah. like, you know, a, it's like it's what you want. It's Star Trek. It's a cast of, you know, um, of likable people, a crew and they have their differences, but they all work together and they encounter interesting sci-fi problems that are not necessarily like, you know, the evil aliens are here to blow them up. No, it's some other stuff. You know, it's the entity. It's, you know, the, the diplomacy, the, the problem solving, and they get the job done. And the show does that pretty well. I think the first the pilot episodes um, or problem mission of the week. Oh, by the way, we should talk about mission of the week and how, like, you know, it's a return to that form rather than kind of uh, the tortured, uh, you know, serialized storytelling of, of scripting, of streaming television in this modern era. Um, but uh, the the first episode um, really kind of went there with like the you know whole aspect of interstellar travel and you know um, the presence of alien civilizations bringing peace 
um, to the galaxy and and bridging differences and all that good, you know, feel good, utopian Star Trek kind of stuff. Its execution was uh, hampered, I think, by the whole, like, you have to check a lot of suspension of disbelief to be like, okay, like, we can just beam down and everyone either speaks English or they've got, like, the translator thing going on where they can, like, you know, talk in the alien language um, seem and communicate in the alien language seamlessly, which I, I, that didn't totally, like, work for me. And then you also have to accept that, you know, uh, again, CBS <laughs> dad can beam in to an argument and just lay down some knowledge and show some videos of horrible stuff in Earth's past, and the aliens would just get it with the program and stop fighting. Um, that was my take, at least on that the first episode was going to problem-solving nature of things. I don't know if we want to keep going on this or if we want to segue over to the, the more interesting second episode. Well, let's, let's regroup because we've sure. thrown a lot out there. Um, so, yeah, so for people who are not familiar with any of this, right? This is a spin-off show from Star Trek Discovery, right? That was made as part of that contract to make a whole ton of Star Trek. And it is not highly concerned with being a spin-off of any other show. So that the pilot, yep. I'm not going to say it's uncharacteristic, but it's then the other episodes are not very much like the pilot. The pilot has to explain why this show is like how this show is relating to the events of the second season of Star Trek Discovery. Those will not be important, at least as far as I've watched. They might maybe they show up again, but uh, at least for the first season and part of the second season, like I felt no lack of information from not having watched much Star Trek Discovery past the first season. Like and so it is over explaining. But but even more than that, like um, even sort of getting past that, uh, the the relief of it being. The big problems mostly only there are big problems that overarch over the entire season, but each episode mostly stands on its own and mostly has a problem. And the show is very concerned with problem solving. So you could think of whereas, you know, other shows you could think of as sort of like living in the problem, suffering from the problem. Right. Like uh, understanding the kind of state of affairs that's bad. Right. There's a lot of ways that a show can kind of come around on a problem and and reach a resolution um and and i think this show is very geared towards problem solving uh and and i guess creative problem solving um and uh and committed problem solving um and i think that i mean i as i mentioned with regards to the the union disputes the labor disputes happening around the entertainment industry and if you look at you know a leader who should be stewarding their company Right. And in good relationship with the employees that are doing the work, from my opinion, I know that's not a a typical opinion to have that. It's like beneficial to management to like value and promote the work of your employees. Right. Like uh, and to like fairly compensate for them, compensate compensate them for their work in such a way that they can make a living uh, such that they can continue to work for you. These are all very important things to like producing high quality work product over a long period of time. But but the point being that like. uh, that that there are leaders, uh, big and small, throughout this show. People who are leaders in big public ways, people who are leaders in small private ways, people who trust each other and are helping each other. And that's the case in a lot of shows. But in this show, it really stands out. You know how much the people do help each other, but also you know there, it doesn't mean there aren't like fraught issues um, and, and conflicts and stuff because there are. Um, but there is a real. I think it's almost the not the not the fact that they're actually doing it, but the poetry. Uh, through which it's expressed. Um, I mean, you've already talked about some of the ways that it kind of translates the sensoriness, the sort of sensuality 
um, for old school Star Trek, which is a strange thing, right? A strange what rough beast is, you know, slouching towards William Shatner to be born, right? Is like uh, the sensuality of 60s Star Trek, uh, which which the show, I think, is, you know, everything from like you go to the captain's quarters and he's like, help me with these ribs, you know, like and there's like smells <laughs> associated with it and, uh, and tastes and people have real life experiences well, let me rephrase. Let me rephrase. People are experiencing things in this show that uh, are related to things that you might experience with real life that are not like catastrophic or terrible, but are often just nice. But they're also set against people having like really earnest and terrible problems, right? Like um, a lot of the show is concerned with mortality, um, but it's also a pretty optimistic show about helping people, um, which is you know, whereas like you know, Discovery was a was an operatic show that was concerned with sort of tragic failure at least in that first season that we all watch, right? Like, uh, and the sort of, you know, that sort of impetus, that sort of like drive to try to help and all the ways in which each other and the universe like screw it up for everybody, right? And like all of the sort of cross purposes that we are set against in our efforts to try to like help each other um, is one charitable way to read what was going on. Mm. Um, uh, just, and again, through the distant, distant haze of memory. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that one of the things I take away from this show is... Um, is this idea that like the problems are are not that different from the kinds of problems that you would expect in a sci-fi show of this caliber, uh, but they are articulated in a way that feels human and grounded and but also sensual. Not grounded. They're not grounded. It's it's um because uh, it's like a lot of it is very silly. Also, but also just uh, it just feels like it has heart. And you said it was charming, and I would say that it feels sensory and sensual. Um, okay, I will. I will say one thing. I will. I, I know I said I wouldn't spoil anything about the first season, but I do want to talk about one thing about this show, which I think is um, kind of important uh, for like how the show conceives of the concept of nostalgia. Um, so you have heard alluded to in the first couple seasons uh, the Gorn, right? They've come up mm, uh, yes. in conversation a couple times. The Gorn are a thing in this show. In the They're couple, totally yeah, afraid. in a couple, in a couple episodes, they sound, yeah. uh, they sound terrible. They sound like uh, uh, horrible antagonists. Yeah, they're monsters, right? Ah. And uh, they're they're terrible. And uh, but you remember what the Gorn are like in the original Star Trek? Yeah, they're they're like dragon people. They're like rubber mask yeah. aliens. Aren't they're, they? they're like they're like they're like kaiju's except they're regular size. So it's just like a person walking around in a rubber suit, like slowly and, and awkwardly, right? And also, importantly, <laughs> they became a meme, right? Where there's this uh, fight between Kirk yes. and a Gorn alien, which is uh, just poorly staged and cheesy to watch, um, yes. but just looks like what passed for action television in the 60s. Exactly. So it's like this very it's it's featured also in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, the episode where Kirk has to climb the mountain to fight the Gorn. Um, I think it's also the site where Bill and Ted die in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. I think it's the same. They found the place in California. Oh, where they Yeah, die. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But calm. like the Gorn are alluded to and not really shown for like much of the show. And I won't tell you what happens when they're like actually shown. But the Gorn are also discussed in the old Star Trek show before you meet them. And and like, oh, they're, you know, they're very savage, right? They're like, they're very violent. Uh, you know, they, they settle things only through violence. And like, what does that really mean uh, to us as sort of civilized Federation people that we have to deal with these? And of course, the Gorn, as, as they are shown in the 60s, are like kind of embarrassing and horrific caricature of like, the the like servers at an Epcot Center dinner for lizard people, right? Like where it's like they're in traditional dress for crazy lizard people. And so like they don't really get across like an earnest 
uh, approach to this sort of problem of of uh, what would uh, what would an interstellar species look like that was really committed to like a hierarchy of violence and strength when it came into conflict with human beings who you might think of as being in a hierarchy of violence and strength, but really aren't right. Like um, and the way that the Gorn are kind of made it to something serious while at the same time kind of leaned on because the word means something, if you're familiar with the history, uh, without it really resembling the original Gorn all that much. Um, it just it feels like a good verse translation. It feels like, you know, the the latter Odyssey, right? What's the most recent big Odyssey that came out? We talked by, about it on the podcast. Yeah, we did. Um, it's by a translator named Emily Wilson. Yeah, so this is sort of like an... This is not a like. Sorry, I had to turn around to my to my bookcase yeah. because, of course, I own it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, my, you can only buy so many Odyssey translations before the. Yeah, I know you want to. You know, we all want to read them when they come out, but like, you know, buying there's not enough room on the shelf for all of them. You know, I've got my Fitzgerald, I've got my Fagels, um, but anyway, got it. Got to add Wilson. You know, yeah. A, this a, is not a. This is. This is not a like interrogation of Star Trek. It is an Emily Wilson style translation of Star Trek where like symbols are replaced with symbols that mean something to us that might have meant something, you know, different symbols might have been used in the 60s. Um, you know, the, the the intimacy of a marriage and the sort of implied physicality in the intimacy of a marriage, though, the visual language for communicating that on television is fundamentally and totally changed. Right. Like, uh yeah. And so, like, we we see, OK, you know, Spock has a wife, you know, and we see that in the 60s in the context of what it's like for somebody who's like in a in a job to, like, have to go talk to their wife on television. <laughs> and now we see like, oh, you know, we now show a lot more intimacy on television and we we've reconceived the notion of marriage a lot in society since then. And like, what does this all mean for the idea that Spock has a wife, which is, of course, still a problem. Because you know we all know Spock's real love is James Kirk, and so mm. that has to be uh, that has to be circumvented at some point. But no, I'm, I'm joking about that. Um, but only partially. But yeah, I guess I would say is that like um, the the feelings that it evokes, like even the theme song. Did you guys like the theme song? The kind of well, it's a str- sure, it's kind sure. of like through a glass darkly version of the original Alexander Courage Courage theme song, right? Yes, like- exactly. It's so it's the oh yeah. theme song, which is bonkers. I, one one of my more well, confounded it's played, moments. It's, it's a good it's a good melody. It's played on a theremin and like originally or something like, and it sounds a little weird. But the the original the Alexander Courage melody is da ba 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 da ba da ba da ba 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 da ba da ba da ba da ba right. And it's this is a kind of like this is like a version of that. The 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 relationship is is akin to like a sound alike uh when they yeah. when like a, a tv show wants to play a famous pop song but they can't um they can't clear the rights to actually get the real pop song or they can't afford it or something like that so they they get one that like just sounds just like completely completely cops the vibe but uh is different enough that it's uh you know that it is a legally distinct entity right it's called the sound alike and that was the relationship that i heard i was like do they are they could they not get the star trek theme song for star trek <laughs> and and then i realized no okay they're actually doing something right like there there's yeah. th- this is intentional it's a kind of mirror version mirror universe version you know of what the of what the original um what the original one sounded like what one of my first moments of being confounded while watching television 
was when I first watched Star Trek, the animated series. And I remember this from how many years ago? This is like coming back to my memory. And I was perturbed that they used the theme song from the original show because the original the theme song for the original show, in my mind, was so obviously terrible. Now, granted, I'm like less than 10 years old at this point. Right. Like I'm a little child and I'm like I and I'm sort of thinking like, well, that was old and bad and they only did it because it was really old. And like, well, this cartoon is also really old. And and uh, but like if you go through this sort of relationship between form and function of the songs, it's like, you know, you, you get to the next generation songs and it's a contemporary, you know, Hollywoody, you know, John Williams inspired kind of march. Right. And uh and you have that sort of brassy orchestral feel that goes along with the scope of it being a space show. And like, these are the tools at our disposal. And so we're going to write a song that relates to these tools. And then, you know, through Deep Space Nine and Voyager, like that's the norm, right? It's, it's this sort of uh, American orchestra kind of thing. And, and, uh, and so that has its own sort of aesthetic space, but it also then becomes its own self-reference and you have to get away from it. So then it's like, okay, well, what's your relationship with like 60s aesthetic? And for the J.J. Abrams stuff, it's like, well, we're going to the show is going to be 60s aesthetic. It's like the, the movies are going to be like Austin Powersy, Right. As in, like, we're going to be like making a simulacrum of 60s fashion as part of the drive to make these movies like aesthetically pleasing and, and interesting. Mm-hmm. Right. Like like we're, we're focusing on the fact that Star Trek was mod once and isn't anymore. And we're going to make Star Trek mod again, uh, which this show does not do. This show does not make Star Trek 60s. Uh, and, and it also doesn't a lot of cat eye eyeliner, lot of cat eye eyeliner, but that's the coincidence. That's, that's that from reality though. Right. Isn't there a lot of cat eye eyeliner in real life these days? I mean, maybe not, maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I, I feel like, I mean, they draw some of it, you know, there's lots of tight shirts. Uh, there's lots of like, uh, what, like straight lines in the, uh, in the tailoring. Um, not a lot of pleats. Sure. I don't know. There's a lot, there's a lot about it that feels uh, aesthetically similar, but not in the same way that J.J. Abrams stuff does. And J- and Discovery was let's bring it all contemporary, like yeah. let's make it all current, right? And Inter- Enterprise was like, you know, let's let's flail wildly and open something. Ba- wait, wait, back Bacula Enterprise? You mean? Yeah, oh, okay, yeah, got right? it. That was more like we're not Battlestar Galactica, you know, or like we could try to be. I don't know. I don't. I don't watch enough of that show to be authoritative on it. The point being that like we're at a point where we're taking the old material. And as you said, it's like it's it's sound alike. It's like something that is not even inspired by it, but like tracking a sort of vocabulary of symbol that needs to be translated before it can be used in front of an audience. Sure. Um, And and understanding that those things do need to be translated is important. I mean, here's another one that jumps out to me as sort of interesting about this show. The 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 honor the honor that is given over to Uhura in the show. Mm-hmm. And this is like honor in like an old sense, right? Like this is an honored character. And, be- and because she's honored, like because of Michelle Nichols, Michelle, it's Michelle, right? Not Michelle. No, Michelle. Yeah, exactly. Nichelle. Yeah. Michelle. Um, she's uh, because we honor her so much for what she did. Her character is now someone who is more honored. Right. And, and so that sense of the character kind of carries over there's the idea that like the intent behind the original Uhura has been changed by the relationship of the readership to who Uhura is and also who the actress is and what that means. And so that also affects who the character is. So now you're going to encounter encounter a character named Uhura. 
She is going to represent all sorts of ideas associated with being a trailblazing, you know, um, I would say African-American, though Uhura in the show is African. Uh, she's from she's from Kenya. Right. And so like a uh, woman, black woman uh, in, in this kind of world. And it's going to take on a vocabulary that feels contemporarily impressive. Sure. But, but in, in Starfleet, the world right? is America. So everyone oh, yeah. is an everyone is an American. So have you, you heard know. about the United States of America? Is that like a line in the second episode? It, no, um, it's episode episode two. Have you played yeah. Jenga? It's an old game from the United States of America. Oh no, no Yahtzee, Yahtzee. Yahtzee it's an yes. old Earth game. It's an old yes. Earth game. Yeah. <laughs> no, the U.S. the United States of America gets referenced in episode one in the context of our second civil war, which it's a brief tangent, by the way. Like this, I, I give the show credit for. I believe they just took straight up January 6th archival footage and said <laughs> that was a, that was the start of the second American Civil War. That was yeah. bad, y'all. Yeah. And so so I guess what I'm trying to get at is like uh, is a is a further level of the metabolism of this nostalgia that's going on. Right. Like metabolism is a wrong word for it, but maybe you can come up with a better one. If the idea is that when these stories came around last time. Right. Um, or at the time that they were important to anybody. They served a purpose in the sort of integration of feelings and memory in the sort of uh, you could talk about what sort of ideas landed with people, what sorts, you know, what what did the amygdala really book for Star Trek? What did it put in your brain somewhere for your connection to this thing called Star Trek? And then there's the nostalgic appeal of like, I'm going to show you that thing because I know how the amygdala works in the brain and I know that memory and emotion are tied. And so if I show you this thing that you had a strong feeling about that you remember, then you will have a strong feeling again. And now it's saying, okay, we're at the point where we layered enough memory on top of the old memory and enough changeover has happened with like people getting older and and different you know, people being born, right? And joining the, the human race. Um, and that, uh, that, that it's not just about remembering what it used to look like, but what is the role that it's having? Like, what is that sort of space in your psychology that's occupied by this and, and how can we get after that space? And that seems like I'm kind of recapitulating a lot of what's already been said, but I, I'm, I want to skip the sort of, the sort of, um, the content of it. The idea that like, oh, well, Star Trek was always about being optimistic, you know, and about about the future. And it's like, blah, 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 blah. Let's like strip down to the real bare bones, which is like it entered your mind at some point through your memory uh, and, and it had associations. And how do we access the associations and kind of call them forward? Right. Like um, like like even more basic than the idea of what the show is about is more like, how is this a show that relates to memory? Um, to your memory, to collective memory, to influence, you know, sort of indirect memory. Um, and I mean, it's a show that's concerned with memory because it's a show where the inciting incident is a cursed memory. Um, and and where the problem, <laughs> the core problem for everybody is that we all remember the pilot episodes to the first Star Trek show and what happens to this guy. <laughs> like, or at least maybe we do, maybe we don't, but we know that this guy isn't going to be around, right? And we know mm. that the show eventually has to you know, become the original series of Star Trek. And so these people can't stick around like something has to happen to them. Um, you know, maybe it's not all bad, but some of it's going to be bad. Um, and so that's sort of we've talked about that phenomenon before. But this show for me, just it seems to be uh, calling on some element of psychology and poetry. Um, in the way that it's symbology. I mean, maybe if you guys watch it more, you would see more of that. Maybe you won't. Um, maybe you won't watch it more. Um, but uh, 
Um, I don't know. That, that's that's one of the, re- the reasons that I that I recommend the show and, I, and how I feel about it. Like when the when the lights go on, that, that's another that's another great one. It's like um, the uh, there's a there's a line in Picard season two where there Picard is on the bridge. Are <laughs> four <laughs> lights. There's and a, there's a confounding on. and strange line in the second season of Picard uh, where he or speech he gives where he talks about how much he enjoys being the only living thing in like an uncaring and, and vacant universe. Right? Like where where he loves like where Picard loves like sitting on the bridge when everyone else is asleep and just staring out at the galaxy and being the only person who's watching, which is like certainly a poetic thing, but seems entirely out of character for this person uh, that we've known for all these years. But that's not the point. The point is that it's like scary. Like, like it's sort of for me, I found that like a pretty like Picard is like, oh, he's kind of like a junkie, an adrenaline junkie. He wants to be scared. He wants to go to the scary places. Uh, He wants to do the horrifying things, like go to the horrifying places and do horrifying things. But this idea that a starship, the sort of uh, metaphor of the starship is as like this light, this single light in like a vast darkness. And then you get to the opening credits of Strange New Worlds, and what is the sort of first image you come up with is that you're in darkness, and then a light comes up, but then a whole bunch of other lights also come up because it's the individual crew members' rooms, right? Everybody's waking up, and all their lights are coming on, and so it's communicating this idea that like they're out in this wilderness, and uh, but they have each other, right? And there's like different stories that are happening, and different people that are engaged in it, and that there's a sense that you can like draw strength from the fact that you're not the only person that exists. Right. Um, I mean, isn't that sort of a big part of that first episode is this idea of, uh, you know, you it's an interesting argument about, about anxiety and determinism. Right. It's like you may know what your destiny is and that might terrify you. But like what effect are you going to have on other people? Mm. You might not know that yeah. and you might not know what effect other people are going to have on you either. So even if you feel like locked into what you are and who you are, you know, who you're engaged with and what you're doing, um, you can think about others. And that can help you cope. Yeah. Um, to, 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 play that, to explain that very briefly to anybody's yeah. listening who has seen the show, it's pretty simple. It's like Captain Pike sees a vision of his death, like however many years into the future. And he also knows that in doing so, he saves a whole bunch of lives of these kids. This is before the ribs party, well. by the way. The ribs party happens <laughs> <Yeah>. later. <laughs> so this is a show so that his whole, his, but his, in the his ribs, whole thing. But in the ribs party, he does ask the honorable cadet Uhura, where do you see yourself in <laughs> 10 years? <laughs> Because he's uh, he's his death comes to ten years. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, Mark. No, 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 no. That's the, the, the thing, the thing is, right? You know, he has to come to terms with continuing to live on his life and you know be in duty and service to others, knowing that, or if he is at the same time, he's come to terms that he's going to die yeah. pretty soon. Yeah, and it's like it's an interesting setup. I, I appreciate it. Um, it also, maybe this is a good way to segue into the second episode as well, because that this whole notion of predeterminism and fate. Um, and, uh, you know, no fate, but what you make for yourself, which is basically a line that comes out in the second yeah. episode, but which um, is probably undermined, is, I think, but yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, let's talk about in, in what ways, um, and that like within the, the, the story of that episode in particular, it comes up again that like, you know, they, um, they redirect this comet, but like the, that was the comet's plan all along and knew it was, it was going to happen. Um, it was interesting. It was like, uh, you know, something that, um, I haven't seen a lot of in star trek and now granted i haven't seen a ton of it i know of course there was you know plenty of time travel in 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 star trek but um like the 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 overarching arc 
um, that's nerds out. Be a good idea that 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 the the broader narrative piece uh, with Pike, you know, confronting his his fate and contemplating destiny and things like that um, is useful and interesting and 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 uh, and I'm I'm here for it. Yeah, I think I'll, I want to see where 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 it goes out. But so yeah, second episode. Should we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. yeah are, sure. are you on Are you on Team Fate or Team Free Will? <laughs> um. <laughs> Why not both? I mean, team, like, well, team fate is, is that a, is that a false dichotomy? I think like is that that would be the. That is, <laughs> that's I think that the 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 strange new world's answer to that would be why not both? Right, that, that reject the false dichotomy and kind of like how the first episode like rejects a very dogmatic uh, um, interpretation of the prime directive and non-interference, and this show would uh, try to try to find a third way as well. I think. Yeah. I guess what I might articulate a position of sort of chaos inspired skepticism where like, yeah, sure. You might have information about your destiny or your destiny might not be changeable based on predetermined situation, but you don't really know. Even if you know, even if you think, you know, you don't really know what's going on, like just in the world in general. That's part of it being a strange new world, I suppose. Right. It's like, there's stuff out there you don't understand. And, uh, and not, not in the sense of like, I, I mean, there's a reason this episode wasn't made before Gene Roddenberry would have shot this whole thing down because this is very counter to Gene Roddenberry's whole idea, uh, about like science over religion, which he's like very, very intense on. Um, but, uh, I mean, maybe there's, there's probably a Star Trek episode out there that's like this because there's a Star Trek episode about everything. But the idea that like the zealots end up being right is something he wouldn't be comfortable with. But, um, but the idea isn't necessarily that like in a night, like, like they leave it there for people who want to interpret it that way. I think because it's comfortable, the idea that like, you don't really know any, everything that's going on. And that's something that you can kind of empirically demonstrate by looking at various sorts of emergent systems, uh, you know, and like, Oh, like I can't, I can't observe this at every point in its development. And therefore, like, I can't really know for certain, like what's going on with it at this particular point, And I can't necessarily replicate it. Um, and if there's a possibility of, you know, relativistic transmission of, of information over over time in a way that implies time travel, which of course is a Star Trek thing, then of course there are some people who will have information about their futures. Um, but then this idea that like, well, you might not actually really know. Um, and if you don't know, then what's 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 the point of being a determinist if you can't know, right? If if there's like if 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 you're never going to be certain about it. Um, right? Like uh, like sure, in an abstract sense, it might be predetermined, but like you you that doesn't help you in your everyday life because it, all it might do is cause you to lean harder into your biases in terms of your early conclusion this is on. what I, this this has been pete for a long time my thing with with determinism which is that like uh no it i mean what what how will it affect your how will it affect your life right like you, you a lot of better outcomes flow from uh, acting as though or believing you know you have you have control over your over your actions yeah. and not believing you have control over your actions just kind of makes you a jerk so you know it's better it's better to to go with uh go with team free will i think even you know if it's not even if it can't be proven empirically i suppose i mean what i would say personally is that i believe much more in kind of second order decision making than first order decision making for humans in the sense that like there really are limitations on what in the moment you you can expect yourself to be capable of deciding to do. Um, but, you know, you can make decisions earlier that then like follow through onto those moments. Right. So it's sort of like 
if you want to be in a situation where you make a particular decision, sure, you may not, you know, you can demonstrably not have full control over that decision in that moment, but you might have some degree of partial influence over previous decisions that then can come to come to pass in that moment, uh, at least in a way that that um, that that creates uh, um, more of what you want to have happen as an outcome, um, regardless of whether there it could have happened any other way. Mm-hmm. By which I mean like throw away the cookies and you won't eat the cookies, right? Like like don't have the cookies in your house and you won't eat them. Don't was, go out and get drunk with a whole bunch of people. It was predetermined yeah. that I go out and get drunk with a whole bunch of people. <laughs> Like, yeah, don't go and get drunk and then you won't do stupid stuff that undermines your relationships, right? Like, uh, like understand what causes, what influences your mind. Nurse Chapel, uh, put this synthahol away. <laughs> but Spock, it'll help your regenerative properties. <laughs> Ponfar. <laughs> and Spock um, can pawn far. I mean, Mark, what do you believe about the free will stuff? I, I'm never convinced by the argument that, like, well, we looked at decisions and we found that the point of decision doesn't all happen at one synchronous moment. That that's like a sufficient explanation for like I mean, a this, lack of, yeah. This is a bit of a cop out, but like you know, this is a TV show, and like you know, it's, he's a CBS dad, and like you know, his decisions are going to matter well, yeah. along the way. So, yeah. <laughs> The things he says that inspire people that they remember later that cause them to do the right thing. Or, you know, bad. like there's going to be some, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, how he goes about it will be important. Or maybe like he doesn't die. He gets like, you know, transported into another dimension or something like that. You know, it's Star Trek. They'll find a way. To, oh, my goodness. The vision, the vision stopped before I was resurrected. <laughs> well, we know from the show that he gets horribly disabled. I think I think we know from the original series that he like is in a is in a sort of wheelchair ventilator and like horribly mutilated and can't. Is that talk. what is that what canonically canonically happens to Christopher Pike? I, oh, I wasn't aware. I, I thought they I just, just remade a remade a different pilot with William Shatner and and he will let us never speak of him again. But uh, no, no, no. He has like a single light that turns on when he talks. He's like. He's like from Breaking Bad, like T.O. Salamanca for Breaking Bad. <laughs> He's like, ding, 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 ding. And that's how he talks. He testifies uh, at a trial, I think, um, or something along those lines. It's been a long time. But the point being that, like, I don't remember him dying. I remember him being horribly disabled. <laughs> so, like, maybe he has a life ahead of him, I suppose. But, yeah, the second episode is about this this intersection. It's about, like, it's about problem solving with people that you disagree with. And holding out the possibility, holding open the possibility that problems can be solved and that, you know, the, the worst possible thing isn't necessarily going to happen. Right. Um, and uh, and it's also about and in line with that, it's about kind of music and harmony symbolically as they relate to like working together with people and kind of singing as, as a as a metaphor for finding your voice. Right. Or a metonym. Right. Like learning to sing as, as a way or like having the courage to sing in a place where singing doesn't make sense as a metonym for speaking up for yourself in a place and situation where you feel like you don't have the credentials or authority or social station to do so. Right. Um, and so it's both about assertiveness and also about deference and the sort of relationship between the two concepts, the humility necessary to be open to like other solutions and the confidence to step forward with your solution, even if it's maybe not like the natural social thing to do. I've situation. I've discovered how this how the show communicates by metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
I will say one thing about this show. Um, although we should really touch on Mr. I mean, the, Mount's past, the, the thing, Mountebank. Well, yeah, but. exactly. The the, the uh, I mean the the interesting thing there is at the end it, the the thing that that made it interesting to me was like at the end they show that the the comet had foreknowledge of what Spock was going to do to uh, alter its course. Right. And yeah. so like it was right. all it was all part of the the plan that they would be there and would, you know, out of concern for the population of this planet, this, you know, this sort of Bronze Age civilization down on the planet, like not all getting wiped out, that they would alter the course of the comet in a way that that produced like specific chunks of ice in a, you know, shape or whatever that was foretold uh, by the comet. But like the thing, the thing to me, Pete, that militates against your reading of like, oh, it's how we it's how we uh, solve problems collaboratively uh, with people who have different points of view than us is that they solve the problem by deceiving them. <laughs> <You know? laughs> they solve the problem by like, like, okay, guys, turn off all the lights. We're going to pretend that like uh, our ship has been disabled secretly. Spock is going to do, you know, the, the, like the hot knife ice block cutting uh no touching though no touching no touching no touching that's what is that that's arrested arrested development yeah exactly right right exactly right like spock is like barton lisa spock is like i'm just going to punch my heat shields and walk forward and if your comment is in the way of my heat shield i'm not responsible for that um You know, like, uh, like, uh, two siblings, two siblings spoiling for, spoiling for a fight. But then the thing that, that, that sort of made it, made it interesting is the, well, the comet, the comet knew, the wise comet knew all along, you know, and not that, that's mumbo jumbo, but like the, the, the interesting thing is like, you sort of, that your knowledge, your knowledge of kind of what part you play in proceedings is imperfect. You know, and that, that like you, you may think you're doing something one way because of one reason, but in, you know, with a broader perspective, you might actually be a part of a, you, you know, you might be a part of a different effort or like the, the effect or the intention might, might not exactly be what you, um, or you, you, you might, in other words, you, you might think that you are, uh, you might think that you are an ends, but in fact, you are a means, you know, and that's, uh, that is an interesting, even when not considered on a cosmic scale with like an all knowing comet, right? Um, like, uh, that, that is an interesting point to make in the, the fate versus free will, um, context because it, you know, it sort of zooms, it sort of zooms the question out. And it points at the kind of the limits of understanding and how those might, how, you know, how our limited, how our limited, uh, perspective, you know, might, might like, um, color our understanding in a way that leads us to, to false conclusions. But I'm sorry, Pete, you wanted, before we, as, as we kind of round the corner on the hour and we want to like, uh, we want to wrap up, you, you want to, um, you want to, uh, talk a little bit about Christopher Pike's, uh, portrayer. And, and so let me ask you, Pete, a question. Whom does Anson mount? <laughs> <laughs> okay. The so, answer uh, is Britney uh, Spears. It's I'm Britney sorry. Spears. I, I, couldn't, it's amazing. I couldn't keep it in. I couldn't keep it. It's in. amazing. So of oh, course fate, we all fate. watched. Mark, were you there when we watched this movie? I think Rather and I watched this movie together. No, 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 no. That's all stuff of legend. 
but I mean, do you remember watching this movie together? Rather, uh, no, I don't. It's lost. Day? It's lost okay. in the in the midst of time for me. So you got to tell me about Maybe it. Maybe it was Blink. It could have been other Matt. Yeah, exactly. It might have been just Blink. I mean, other people were there. I'm pretty sure Jordan was there. So Anson Mount, who plays Pike in both Star Trek Discovery and this show, is in a little movie. Uh, called Crossroads, which maybe <laughs> you saw and maybe you didn't. You probably didn't. It's the Britney Spears movie. It's from a long time ago. And I believe he is the love interest in that movie. So he is the he might be the person for whom the song I'm not a year girl, not yet a woman is directed. <laughs> like like the idea that like this is a show. This is a movie in which several of Britney Spears songs are presented as having been like diegetically composed, uh, you know, because of the events of this fictional character's life. Uh, which yes. is, I think, a, a reasonable sort of jukeboxy musical kind of thing to do. Um, but, uh, man, I never thought I would see that man ever again. <laughs> There's literally a scene where they're, like, in a hotel and then they, like, pan to the ocean rather than show them, like, being intimate with each other. <laughs> and it's like, it's like, oh, man. Um, it, it's funny because don't get it. Don't get it twisted. There was also a movie called Crossroads that I believe was about blues singers. Oh yeah. <laughs> that came out at like no, that's roughly different. the same time. That's not that's the a mi- different movie. That's this not is the, the movie. 2002 teen comedy drama, uh, um, by Shonda Rhimes. Written uh, by with, Sh- wait, a writer wrote that. A writer name, wrote that. And her name is Shonda Rhimes. Yeah. Now where in Shonda Rhimes, career is Crossroads is an interesting, um, Oh, it's pretty great. It's, it's like, yeah. it's, yeah, we were in college or or yeah. just out like it was 2002 or something. I had no idea. Man, I didn't realize that the woman who wrote Crossroads would go on to be like one of the great writers of like uh, screen entertainment <laughs> in, uh, in in of her generation, if not, you know, history generally in, in their in her uh, in her in her genres, in her particular genre. Creator yeah, of Bridgerton, yeah. Shonda Rhimes, yep. you know, uh, yeah. Yeah, was the original created by creator of Scandal, right? Yes, creator wrote the Britney Spears movie Crossroads, which has Anson Mount in it as Ben, that guy who's your friend's guy that she's into. Um, and uh, and Matt, I think you uncovered an interesting story. I think that really that really talks about because really we've been talking about destiny, and and uh, if if a new Star Trek series coming out is sort of a destiny that we all dread. Uh, and, and part of the lesson here is to like, remember that even the wise do not see all ends. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's true. You never know. You You never know. know. The show could have been good. You never would have guessed. You would not have put money on the idea that like, we like Star Trek, uh, brave new, uh, strange new worlds. I keep calling it brave new worlds. Um, but no, I got this, you know, I got this from the IMDB trivia page. So I don't know how, I don't know how it's sourced. I don't know, you know, but I choose to believe I think right? it's from the Encyclopedia Britannica before it was official, <laughs> right? They researched as, it personally. As yeah. with, um, you know, as with my own free will, I choose to believe because it makes my life so much richer to yeah. to believe that this story is is true. I I read to you now um, uh, from the Anson Mount trivia page from IMDb. Anson Mount was reluctant to play the role of Ben in Crossroads 2002 because he thought the movie and the role was too cheesy and lame. <laughs> Two things that it is, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> Though but, not, not but quite as it, lame as you Is it think. too cheesy and lame, you know? Uh, oh, however, however, while working on the movie City by the Sea 2002... Co-star Robert De Niro encouraged Mount to take the part, being that De Niro is a big Britney Spears fan. 
course he is. You heard it here first. De Niro is a Britney <laughs> Spears fan, or free Britney, uh, says Robert De Niro. Uh, during breaks from filming City by the Sea, Mount and De Niro would go over the script from the movie Crossroads, Mount reading his lines, and De Niro reading Spears' lines. <laughs> Robert De Niro thought that he was making a contribution to the American art form of filmmaking, you know, when he starred in the film Taxi Driver, when he starred in the film Raging Bull, when he starred in uh, The Godfather Part Two, when he, you know, uh, in, in any number of films in which he collaborated with, with Martin Scorsese. Um, but no, he didn't know that instrumentally he was useful to American movie making when he ran lines with Anson Mount, uh, preparing him, giving him the, the method chops <laughs> that he would need to yeah. go, uh, to go on and to play Ben Kimball in Crossroads yeah. 2002. And if only there had been a video, if only those had been the days in which like we just tape everything all the time because we can on our phones, because I want, I want to imagine the counterfactual alternative universe version, the mirror universe version of Crossroads, where it's a love story between Anson Mount and Robert De Niro. (laughs) And he sings a song, I'm not a man, not yet a gangster. Yeah. <laughs> to uh to Anson Mount and that that uh charts and yeah, oh man, I love to uh I love to just contemplate what might have been. Yeah. The future, man. <laughs> the future from the perspective of the past. Let's uh <laughs> which is what Star Trek is all about too. Well, anyway, let's yeah. uh, let's abandon ship and initiate yeah. self-destruct. Uh, thanks very much, everyone, for listening to us talk about strange new worlds. Who are you calling new? Who are you calling new? I'm a geological phenomenon. I've been here for <laughs> billions of years since the dawn of the universe, since the first bits of matter coalesced in the immediate aftermath of the Big Bang. Who are you calling new? Anson yeah. you Mount. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Strange, okay, alone. I'm strange, yeah. but new. Uh, thanks very much to Pete and Mark for podcasting <laughs> with me. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. I, I don't know if we're going to get to see uh, either Barbie or Oppenheimer in any kind of, uh, you know, our schedules are a little weird in any kind of thing. And if I can't see it in 70 millimeter IMAX, I'm not even going to go at all. I felt the same way about Crossroads. <laughs> big screen or nothing man that's how it goes i want to see those waves when the camera pans to the waves as large as possible i want to be like dunkirk with us banging in my ears oh we'll be back next week until then you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of the popular culture including star trek discovery episode by agonizing episode i think one of the clickbaity titles of our articles was is michael burnham a cannibal and you can get that you can get that hard we hitting so hard to care we wanted single-handedly to rescue publishing and uh you know the fact that we failed to do it will always be a black mark in my own self-esteem we're on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, probably 
doesn't deserve. Hit it. What would be your thing to say instead of engage or like make it so or like what would you say if you were trying to get the ship to go to warp? Um, I don't know. Like, uh, let's let's party. Let's party. I like that. I like that. <laughs> hey, <laughs> you it's like a Bruce. That's like a uh, yeah, that's like a um, course course plotted and laid in, Captain. All right. Let's party. It's Campbell style. <laughs> <laughs>